If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 473. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage. BrianMcClanahan.com. Why are you there? Give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Go out to McClanahanAcademy.com. Subscribe. It's free to enroll. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, you get awesome stuff, great courses. I've got great coupons running right now if you're listening to this the week of July 5th. All kinds of good stuff. I have a new course out. You're going to want that. Go to uh, BrianMcClanahan.com forward slash support. You can get a book plate. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com to get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. You can go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. All kinds of great ways to support the show. Share it around on social media. Rate it wherever you get your podcasts. It's available on all major podcast streams, so you're going to want that. Wherever you get it, send me those show requests. I like to do that stuff. Now, this is actually an oldie, but it gets a show request from way back. In fact, from last year. I just didn't get around to it. But I thought it'd be good. We've just gone through the 4th. And by the way, happy Independence Day. Happy Secession Day. I know it's you're getting this on July 7th. doesn't matter. Happy Independence Day. Happy Secession Day to you and your family. And of course, we got to talk about a founding father. We've been doing some stuff with the founding generation this week. We talked about federalism. We talked about nationalism. But let's talk about Alexander Hamilton. That bridges into my books, The Jeffersonian Traditions, Southern Scribblings, which are very critical of Hamilton. And of course, how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America, which is uh, the last book I wrote for a major publisher. Um, And... I remember when that book was, we were going through discussing it, the publisher was really excited about doing some things with it, and then they crushed it. They killed it because they got some pushback from some people saying, how can you say that Hamilton has screwed anything up? This is bad. This is bad news. Now, the same publisher went out and just published a book on a critical book of Lincoln, but I remember when I wrote a book my pig to real American heroes, and I was critical of Lincoln, they crushed that chapter as well because they didn't want at the time anything negative said about Lincoln. You see, there is this common misperception of Lincoln and and Hamilton as being conservative. You know who didn't think they were conservative? Well, Russell Kirk. And why didn't he think they were conservative? Because they weren't, and they aren't. And we need to get over that, right? When you look at the Broadway musical Hamilton, and you look at what what Miranda did with that, Lynn Miranda did with that, he basically showed Hamilton in some ways for what he was, which is a modern leftist. I agree. In fact, there was a book that came out last year, 2020, and it's written by Christian Parenti, 
And the title is, it came out, yeah, 2020. The title is Radical Hamilton. Radical Hamilton. Now, he says there's been no critical examination of Hamilton as being, all the conservatives claim him. He actually said, and the libertarians now, they're a little critical of him, but nobody focuses on his economic programs as being radical and leftist. If you look at the introduction to my book on Hamilton, I guess Christian Parenti missed that, because, again, it should have been bigger than it was, but Regnery killed it, effectively killed it. Um, you will find that um, the point is, in that book, look, everybody claims him. Leftists claim him. Conservatives claim him. Conservatives shouldn't claim him at all. The leftists have a greater claim to Alexander Hamilton than anybody. So I actually agree with Christian Parenti, and I'm going to go through this, that Hamilton is a radical. Hamilton was a leftist. Hamilton was not conservative. Russell Crook agreed with me. He didn't include him in his conservative mind, which is the definitive book of the 1950s about American conservatism. He did have John C. Calhoun in that book. He had John Adams. He had a bunch of other people. But, I mean, looking at the antebellum period, John Randolph of Roanoke, John Adams, John C. Calhoun. No Alexander Hamilton, no Abraham Lincoln. For good reason. Neither one was conservative. No matter what Harry Jaffa says, Abraham Lincoln is not conservative. We need to exercise that demon, as I said on Monday. We need to exercise that demon. He needs to go away. Alexander Hamilton is not a conservative. No matter what all the National Review people say, Richard Brookheiser and others, he's not conservative. I know Forrest McDonald was very high on Alexander Hamilton. But Hamilton, and Hamilton was, I will give this, I mean, look, I will say some positive things about Hamilton in this way. Hamilton was a real patriot. Hamilton was heroic. Hamilton was a brave individual as a young man in his 20s. I mean, there's no victory at Yorktown without Alexander Hamilton, right? Hamilton was an intelligent man, prone to flowery language, prone to it being about Hamilton and nothing else. But Hamilton, but Hamilton was ambitious. Hamilton was destructive, self-destructive in many ways, and also, of course, destructive of the Federal Republic. Hamilton was duplicitous. Hamilton was problematic. This is why the original title for that book was going to be The Two Faces of Hamilton. Because you have the Hamilton and what Hamilton says and what Hamilton does. They're two different things. Hamilton was problematic. So I want to read the first some of the introduction of this book. Um, he gets some things wrong about Hamilton. First of all, he makes the claim, and I I covered this in my politically incorrect guide to the Founding Fathers, was Hamilton uh, a homosexual, which Hamilton was not. I don't think there's any evidence that's the case. Um, and I know he gets into the, to the Lawrence situation, but again, men wrote differently in the 18th century. I point this out in that in that book. And I remember years ago, there's uh, if, you're, if you've seen the Tom Woods, Michael Malice section on Politically Incorrect Guides. Uh, I was, they were talking about doing that in some other ways, and they interviewed me for that before they settled on Woods and uh, Malice, the producers of that particular series. And I recorded some shorts for that, and they actually asked this question, and I got into this. No, no, Hamilton wasn't. Um, that's just completely ridiculous. 
that's made up. But here the left, you know, uh, Parenti is a leftist, and he wants to show that because that makes Hamilton hip nowadays, right? I mean, that's true. Um, he, he says, we recognize, recognize him as a key author of the American Constitution and thus of the modern American state, but we never connect his theory of state to his full theory of economic development. Well, I think the libertarians all do, but we don't have an American state. We have a federal republic. See, again, he's operating from a position of incorrectly understanding what the United States are, a federal republic. He says, in reality, Hamilton sought to create a national market from 13 semi-integrated pieces and then transition in that in national economy from a lopsided dependence on export agriculture to a balanced and diversified economy centered on manufacturing. Now, Parenti makes a case, this is new, nobody ever said this before. But again, the libertarians have been saying this for years. This is what Hamilton was doing. This is, this is the real Hamilton. This is Tom DiLorenzo's Hamilton's Curse. He talks about it. The whole book is about Hamilton's economic programs and how awful they were. My book is about Hamilton's constitutional machinations and how awful they were and how that led to people like Hugo Black and John Marshall and Joseph Story. It, it allowed them to codify all of these things over time. His set of tools was labeled with a phrase that should be famous, the means proper. These included carefully targeted state subsidies, protective tariffs, strategic exceptions from these same tariffs, select export bans of strategic raw materials, quality control standards and inspections, public investment in infrastructure, research and development, recruitment of skilled labor, and other measures that are detailed later. Hamilton's means proper were the tools of economic planning, and their presentation in the report on manufacture was not merely a list, but also a blueprint for the orchestration and execution of a grand national plan aimed at nothing less than the fundamental economic transformation. I agree, 100%. This is what Hamilton, he was transforming America. He wasn't conserving anything. Hamilton was a wrecking ball to American conservatism. A wrecking ball. Asserting as many do that Hamilton was deep down a free marketeer serves to Elide the progressive and immediately useful elements in Hamilton's thinking. I, I mean, I agree. He says, similarly, Richard Brookheiser, an editor at National Review in his recent Hamilton biography, spends only six pages on the report, during which he mostly ignores Hamilton's advocacy of government intervention. Instead, he focuses on those portions of the report that defend manufacturing as more productive than agriculture. The PBS American Experience documentary on Hamilton devotes one line or about six seconds out of an hour and a half to Hamilton's statist and developmental policies. Even then, the documentary dismisses as sinister and strange Hamilton's flirtation with the idea of public ownership. Uh, but again, the libertarians, Tom DiLorenzo, focused a whole book on it. He, of course, announces Ron Chernow for not focusing enough on this part of Hamilton, the radical transformationist Hamilton. That was the whole point of how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. The whole point of it. This is why, I mean, this book was very popular. Um, marketed to a, to a leftist audience. But I point out in my introduction, there, there's liberals that love Hamilton, there's conservatives that love Hamilton, and they're both wrong. For their own reasons, they're both wrong. Now, 
I would say that this description of Hamilton is more accurate. The radical Hamilton is more accurate. He says, in reality, this is parenti. Hamilton did not use the word tariff in the report, but did write extensively on taxes and protecting duties. He devoted almost half of the report to an explicit and at times painfully detailed discussion of exactly what sorts of duties should be laid on all manner of imports, ranging from iron, lead, and copper to coal, wood, cotton, and, gain, and grain, to flax and hemp, to printed books, to alcohol, refined sugar, chocolate, and more. By my count, the report uses the word duty or duties a total of 89 times. Shankman also interprets Hamilton as relatively ignorant of and hostile to manufacturing. All this, it would seem, is part of an admirable effort to draw our attention to class struggle and the forgotten interests of the artisans and small farmers. He says, uh, the reason for the more generalization of the report is simple. Hamilton's economic ideas contradict and directly attack the prevailing orthodoxy of extreme laissez-faire, the market uber-alice fundamentalism that is the light motif of Wall Street. Big businesses, politicians, academia, and the vast majority of Americans' center-right pundits. The report on the subject of manufacturers is ignored because by today's narrow standards, it is heretical. Its real message, served up in dense, convoluted, and tedious prose, is ignored and thus misunderstood. Now, I wouldn't say that. Um, because Hamilton, he says that it's the... Um, he does say Hamilton's economic ideas contradict and directly attack the prevailing orthodoxy of extreme laissez-faire. But I wouldn't say that people are extremely laissez-faire today. Uh I think that's a mischaracterization of what Americans are. We're a neo-mercantilist society. But Hamilton certainly was interested in mercantilism. This was Hamilton's core basic economic belief. The entire Hamiltonian system, later the American system, the Lincolnian system, all of that was based on extreme state intervention in the economy. It is leftist at its core, which is why Hamilton and Lincoln are not conservatives. The report's opening paragraph smash holes in Adam Smith's core argument about the supposedly self-regulating market. Further in, the report, further in the report outlines a set of policy tools for government intervention in the economy. Hamilton calls these the means proper. They include tariffs, subsidies, public investment, and even imply a legitimate place for public ownership. America's real political economy, our real economic history, has been built around these tools, yet remain in denial. Many years ago, the economist Michael Hudson, researching the intellectual history of American protectionism, which is to say the history of those who followed in Hamilton's footsteps, found that not even... Ostensibly encyclopedic studies of American economic thought paid much attention to economic nationalists, treating them patronizingly as anomalies rather than the men who designed the nation's rise to industrial supremacy. So what Parenti is trying to argue here is that America is not really interested in laissez-faire or some type of free market. What they've always been interested in is centralized state planning with a central banking system. Now, that's one side of the coin. That side won not because they did it legally, but because they did it illegally. That's the whole point. The Jeffersonians resisted all of this stuff. And remember, the Jeffersonians won in 1800. And they knocked down a lot of these things for a time, only to be resurrected by the National Republicans. Ham, uh, I'm sorry, Madison included for some reason in 1816, decides that the bank is now constitutional. But remember, in 1811, the bank failed recharter because Jeffersonians, like George Clinton, knocked it down. That's important. 
So he gets into this. He says, Hamilton's ideas would be called the American School. Then in the 1820s, under the leadership of Kentucky and Henry Clay, they came to be known as the American System. Taken up by Frederick List and brought to Germany, they morphed into the national system. These ideas, the means proper of 1791, helped shape the late 19th century industrialization of Germany and then Japan, and a century later, the industrialization of South Korea, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. Today, these ideas guide the world-transforming rise of China. Indeed, the report is a basic policy blueprint followed by most other successful industrialized countries. You see, it's state planning, he says, that creates all of this stuff. So... Parenti goes on. He says, What drove Hamilton? Charles Beard's 1913 classic and economic interpretation of the Constitution detailed the financial interests of all the framers and the ways in which each of them directly benefited from or was directly assisted by the document. Importantly, Beard exempts Hamilton from such charges. That Hamilton himself never made any money in stocks which he held personally has never been, never been proved by reference to any authentic evidence. And Beard calls highly improbable the idea that Hamilton had ever any considerable sum in securities. Instead of chasing personal benefit directly, Hamilton did it indirectly. As a man of the state, soldier, politician, and bureaucrat, he was materially bound to it and thus worked to create a political structure that tied various economic interests to the new government. His fortune was linked to that of the state. And this is true. I mean, Hamilton recognized, and he did it, that soldiers, for example, will be tied to loyalty if they paid them. This goes back to Pericles and the Athenian welfare system. Hamilton wasn't doing anything unique here. But certainly this idea of state, the nation-state taking over. But remember, Hamilton was in the minority. He was in the minority in the ratification period. If anyone had sniffed that this was going to happen once the Constitution was ratified, the Constitution would not have been ratified. But Hamilton needed the Constitution to create the vehicle to do these things. Illegally, by the way. The nationalists were always working from a position of weakness, but able to use nationalist language. We're America. I'm a union man, not a northern man. Or a, I'm a union man, Daniel Webster. Lincoln, same thing. They were always able to use that kind of language to get what they wanted. And that's the key. The tripartite circuitry of Hamilton's nationalism cast sovereignty as dependent on national defense. National defense was dependent on the capacities of a professional standing army, which was in turn dependent on the wealth and technological sophistication of a manufacturing-based national economy. And that sort of economy, which did not exist yet in 1790, could only be created with the active guidance and support of a powerful central state. Thus, the state was both means and ends. A weak state, in this logic, is the path toward economic underdevelopment and permanent dependence. And he brings up Federalist 11 here, which Hamilton wrote, If we continue united, we may counteract a policy so unfriendly to our prosperity in a variety of ways. By prohibitory regulations extending at the same time throughout the states, we may oblige foreign countries to bid against each other for the privileges of our markets. And, I, you know, I cover the Federalists in my Originalist paper series, and I cover Hamilton quite a bit. He says, American history is not merely interesting. It is also useful. You see, Hamilton is a useful useful past. And because we have Hamilton, we should be looking at doing progressive things in American society. We should be, we should be embracing state control of the economy. We should be embracing state centralization of the economy. This is all good stuff. Like the first generation of Americans, we contemporary Americans also face crisis. Ours takes the form of anthropogenic climate change. 
and the inability of laissez-faire ideology to address it. Yes, see? Hamilton is the way for windmills and solar panels. Well, I don't disagree with them. That is Hamilton. It's Hamilton all the way. This is why we need to get rid of Hamilton as well. Exercise that demon. Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. You can't say it enough. Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. Modern civilization must mitigate the causes of global warming and adapt to its effects. Failure to face this reality will mean almost certain violent social breakdown. Oh my gosh. Addressing climate change hinges upon, among other things, a total transformation of the world's energy sector. We must euthanize the fossil fuel industry and build out clean energy technologies and infrastructure. This means a project of fossil fuel sector deindustrialization coupled with a simultaneous green reindustrialization. You see, in short, we must execute a radical and sweeping economic transformation, only possible because of Hamilton's vision for America. I agree. This is why Hamilton is so incredibly dangerous and why American conservatives should get off the Hamilton boat as well as the Lincoln boat. Let the left have them and fight them because they're wrong. You look at all the situations, the political mess we have, it's Lincoln. The economic mess we have is Hamilton. He says the actual historical record reveals surprising facts. Central among these, that very, the very active role of government in driving economic change. Indeed, the developmental state begins to appear not as something new and foreign, but rather as something old and indigenous. Reading the developmental state back into American economic history forces one to transcend economic orthodoxy and its fixation on laissez-faire and the crackpot notion of a self-regulating market. The laissez-faire creed born in Britain in the late 18th century has in recent decades returned to intellectual supremacy as neoliberalism. This ideology, regardless of the economic malady, always calls for the bloodletting medicine of deregulation, deregulation, privatization, and austerity, even when initially successful laissez-faire economies inevitably lead to crisis. For example, repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act in 1999 significantly deregulated banking led directly to the crash of 2008 and the Great Recession. Really? Uh, you know, I'll say this. I don't think Parenti has ever read any type of Austrian economic stuff. I mean, Tom Woods in Meltdown ripped that entire thing, that entire idea to shreds. In fact, it was government regulation and government intervention in the economy that caused the meltdown. Clear enough. Clear as day. No, to Parenti, it was getting rid of government intervention. Now, Glass-Steagall, let's talk about that for a second. Glass-Steagall was not Hamiltonian. Glass-Steagall, Carter Glass and Henry Steagall, Carter Glass of Virginia and Henry Steagall of Alabama, they were interested in hitting back at northern industrialists who they thought were benefiting too much from Hamilton's revved-up economy. So what do they do? Well, if we're going to use the economy to promote business, let's use it to regulate business as well. And let's go in and regulate these suckers. Hamilton certainly had some regulatory ideas in mind, without question, but I don't know if he would have agreed with Glass-Steagall. You see, the entire big business model was created by Hamilton's, yes, I agree, Republican Party, passing tariffs, federal subsidies, central banking, all of that. That was the late 19th century economy. It wasn't laissez-faire. It wasn't ever laissez-faire, and no libertarian would sit here and tell you it was. It's all Hamiltonianism. And then 
Southerners were getting, and, and Western farmers, this is the populace, were getting just bulldozed by this stuff. So they used the general government, which the Hamiltonians created, to get them back. So what happened in Glass-Steagall is we got a revved-up Hamiltonian economy with no checks on it whatsoever. You could look at Glass-Steagall in some ways as a Jeffersonian reaction to Hamiltonianism, albeit using the central authority to do it, but certainly that's what it was. But that wasn't Hamiltonianism. Um, he said... Uh, Oh, democracy as fetish, slavery as fact. From the very beginning, Hamilton's big government program for economic development faced considerable opposition. Significant among his opponents were Southern agrarian elites like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. This Virginia scene was the natal terrain of the sensibility and political economy that became known as the slave power. You see, it's just slavery. The problem, the people that oppose Hamilton are really just slave. They're usually just pro-slavery racists. That's all they are. You can't oppose this and be anything but a pro-slavery racist. See, think about the logic here. The only people opposed to Hamilton were just interested in slavery. That's it. They weren't really interested in anything else. Republicans in Congress feared the Federalist agenda of building a strong central state. Well, how about because it was illegal? Because they sold the whole Constitution on the fact that this wasn't going to happen. It wasn't just the Republicans in Congress. It was anybody that had a brain that looked at the originalist argument said, wait a second here, you, you said you weren't going to do this stuff. This is particularly true of Southern Republicans, who even in 1791 correctly saw the national government as a threat to their peculiar institution. But slavery was rarely, rarely mentioned. Instead, the ideology of states' rights was their defense. Lurking just beneath the surface of states' rights are, of course, plantation rights. Those plantations, like Monticello, were America's equivalent of feudal manners. On the plantation, economic, legal, and military power were all bound up together and located in the private household of the planter. Virginia planters were the original local, localistas. Southern elites did not want Yankees telling them what to do, how to treat their slaves, how to organize their towns, how to run their elections, how to treat the environment. None of that. Historically, localism and democracy in the South meant that white elites were free to push, free to push black people around, free to feed racist fantasies to poor whites. I mean, Parenti is such a dupe here. He's such a moron. All you got to do is go around and look at real history at the time and figure out this wasn't happening. Yeah, I mean, certainly. You had Jeffersonians all over America that were opposed to Hamiltonian's constant. You had George Clinton in New York. Remember, the Constitution was only ratified in New York by three votes. You had John Lansing, George Clinton. You, I mean, you could go down the list of the anti-federalists or who were the federalists in New York who weren't interested in slavery at all, at all. But no, no, Parenti states' rights is just the it's just the wrench and all this stuff. Really, what was going on is Hamilton's constitutional machinations were the wrench in the entire system because that's not what they signed up for. Fourteen years after Hamilton's death, Congressman Nathaniel Macon of North Carolina summarized up the contradiction. If Congress can make canals, they can, with more propriety, emancipate. Like many slaveholding Southerners, Macon feared that a strong central government would eventually act against slavery. Um, well, what's the argument here, though? They can make If they're doing something that is unconstitutional, then they can do something else that is unconstitutional. That's Macon's argument. He leaves that part out. 
It wasn't that they were opposed to canals per se. They were opposed to illegal canals per se. Jefferson and Madison and Monroe were all fine with internal improvements as long as there was a constitutional amendment to do it. Otherwise, they didn't think they were a very good idea because you broke the compact. At a deep economic level, this is the central and ironic difference between Hamilton and Jefferson. For Jefferson, institutional power in the form of inherited political connections, slaves land in a luxurious mountaintop manner, allowed for illusions of independence. At Monticello, he was omnipotent. His wealth and freedom from drudgery allowed him to pursue fantasies of omniscience by collecting books, scientific instruments, artifacts. He was free to correspond with the great men of the day or write abstracted peon, peons to yeoman, the yeoman farmer. No wonder Jefferson fetishized industrial, individual agency. I'm sorry, he had copious amounts of it. You see, he's just doing this on the backs of the enslaved. While all these all these yeoman farmers were just slaving away, toiling away. They didn't have any of that independence. These people weren't independent. Hamilton was interested in them. That's why he marched into western Pennsylvania to collect taxes on them. Yeah, interested in good yeoman farmers. That's why yeoman farmers resisted Hamilton, because they knew what he was all about. This, I mean, this, this type of history in this Parenti book is stupid. I do agree that Hamilton was a leftist. I don't agree with some of the history he's going through. It's typical leftist Nonsense clap, nonsense clap trap. It's ridiculous. He says, throughout the book, I rely on historians who are sometimes referred to as part of a neo-progressive renaissance. While sharing their broadly progressive politics, I find myself unsatisfied with their suggestion that local government is necessarily more democratic than national government. Many progressive forces have come from the local level, but local sensibilities and power structures have also nurtured some of America's most reactionary forces. White supremacist terror, sexist violence, intellectual backwardness, environmental destruction, and economic underdevelopment. You see, this is where the progressives, they can't figure out what they want to do. Yeah, I mean, but it also allows for all your nonsense at the local level, too, so you get to live in the community you want to live in. He says, too often historians of the founding and early republic, whether they're called Neo-Beardian like Gordon S. Wood or Neo-Progressive like Woody Holton and Teddy Booten, suggest without ever proving that local and state governments were more democratic than the national government. In the following pages, I take a more contingent view. Surveying the state governments of the 1780s, one frequently sees elite self-dealing gangs that were very local but also very undemocratic, oppressive, exploitative, and often profoundly incompetent. So we need more national government because it's much more competent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Joe Biden's very competent. Kamala Harris, very competent people. The Congress, very co Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, very competent people. Very competent. Donald Trump, very competent. Very competent. I mean, we just need more of that. In Radical Hamilton, I have attempted to transcend the aristocracy versus de democracy debate that often frames discussion of the founding, the Constitution, and the early republic. Instead, I argue that a third agenda also operated, the struggle for national survival and state-making. The struggle for foisting a nationalism on the rest of the un, 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 un reluctant American public. I mean, this is what we're getting. The destruction of the original Federal Republic. That's what Hamilton was all about. If the political right and liberal center ignore the report because it attacks their sacred fetish, the market, then much of the left has ignored the report because they see state power and economic development as always oppressive and bad. That is, to some extent, strange. For most of the 20th century, socialism and welfare state liberalism were deeply engaged with the state and development as, con as concepts and practices. Each 
Even much of the right took the state and development for granted. All this began to change in the 1960s. Both the right and left increasingly championed the individual and grew hostile to large state-centric projects. If the new right veered towards extreme libertarianism, much of the new left embraced quasi-anarchist or anarcho-liberal policies. Anarcho-liberal policies, excuse me. Available for use by both political tendencies was the nostalgic call to localism of E.S. Schumacher's Small is Beautiful and Helen and Scott Nearing's Living the Good Life. During the 1980s, as many leftists migrated from uh, movements into universities, post-structuralism and the cultural turn further eroded faith in big projects. Today, many meta-narratives suggesting technological process of improvement comes under assault for carrying embedded oppressive normative judgments. Um, now, I'm, I'm going to stop there with that part of it. But Parenti, I think, gets some things right about Hamilton. He was all about the state. He's all about the nation-state of America, just like Michael Lind is, just like this, uh, this radical decentralization where Smith accurately points out there are people on the left and the right that want the center to hold. Hamilton was the architect of it all. It's why I wrote how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. I mean, look, I could have done this part of it and talked about that, but I didn't. I talked about the Constitution. But I did, in that book, focus on his report and the Bank of the United States. I did all of that, but I focused on it as being constitutionally dubious and illegal and against what he promoted, in essence, while arguing for ratification and against what the founding generation thought the Constitution would mean when they got the Constitution. That's the real rub. This is what Nathaniel Macon was pointing out, but you see, Parenti can't get over that. Nathaniel Macon wasn't always worried about slavery. He was worried about the destruction of the Constitution. Because what's to stop them from doing anything if they can do anything they want? That's the whole, that, was, that was McCulloch v. Maryland. This is John Marshall using Hamilton's language to codify loose construction. That's the problem with all of that, because it opens the door to everything that Parenti's championing here, which is a leftist-centered, a liberal nationalism, one-size-fits-all program that is completely illegal. That's the issue. You want it? To, you want it? Fine, we can have that discussion, but let's amend the Constitution first. Then we could have that conversation. But you know what? Most people wouldn't go along with it, so you just do it, and then you let the courts decide. That's the extra legislative method for the left. That's what happened with Hamiltonianism in 1819. The courts decided, and it became the rule of law, which is why, again, Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.